One of the things that I am truly grateful for, and I, I want you to hear this, one of the things of extreme gratitude from my heart uh, is how our small church is filled with generous givers. I mean, it is truly a beautiful thing to behold. You know, last week, uh, Eric taught out of Philippians. His theme was gratitude through contentment. Uh, but one of the passages he was looking at there in Philippians was how Paul was expressing how early on in his ministry, uh, as he was going around from place to place in all of these uh, regions where the Gentile churches were, he really couldn't drum up the financial support that he needed for ministry. The exception was, was this church at Philippi in that beautiful letter that he writes to them. And he says in that letter that he counted their generous support and gifts as a fragrant offering, that it was an acceptable and pleasing act of worship unto God. Their extreme generosity resulted in not only deep gratitude from Paul uh, because of them, but it overflowed into thanksgiving to God for their generosity. And I want you to know this is how I feel about you, brothers and sisters. This is how I feel about our church So many pastors were saying uh, that during and after the pandemic over the last few years, their giving plummeted and dropped. Uh, We've had the exact opposite thing happen here. Actually, our giving increased. The generosity of God's people continued to increase while many churches were saying, help, we're drowning. We were like, hey, we're okay. And I I praise God for that, man. Why? Because of your faithfulness, right? Because of the generous hearts of the family of believers that call Sent Church home. Our small church has given thousands of dollars this year alone to our ministry partners. We've been, uh, been able to aggressively save in anticipation for whatever God may have for us next. Our bills are paid on time. I praise God for that, right? God is good. God is good. It's all because of your faithfulness. So I'm truly grateful for you and thankful for the generosity of our church family. Now, when most of the time when a pastor announces he's going to talk about generosity and giving, everyone's like, oh, the church is in need. <laughs> yeah, some may head for the door, but are like, oh, they, they must need something, right? Times are tough. That's, that's not the case here at all. Uh, that's not why we're bringing forth this particular message, and especially in the conclusion of our series on gratitude here. Our emphasis has been on the cultivation of a heart of gratitude. And joyful giving is uh, an expression, right, of our gratitude to God. More than anything, I want you to understand that it is a discipleship issue. A lot of times pastors shy away from talking about giving because, again, how people may receive that or perceive it, how it's abused and misused in so many places. But at the heart of a generosity is a discipleship matter. Why? Because it's a heart issue. It's about the heart. Generosity is connected to our understanding of the gospel of grace. Now, as a church, do we want to see our giving increase? Duh, yes. (laughs) Absolutely, right? As God's people give more, other opportunities open to us to be a blessing uh, to others, to be a blessing in our community, to take care of needs and so forth, right? There's much work to be done. But ultimately, what do we desire? We desire a church filled with joyful givers. A church filled with joyful givers whose joyful generosity overflows into greater thanksgiving to God. That's what we're after. 
That's what we want to see here. Now, there are a multitude of, reason, multitude of reasons why many believers don't give. Uh, the average, you know, that you look at, you know, uh, in the church world today, especially in the Western church, they've been seeing a decrease in the average of, of giving in the churches, right? Fewer and few, fewer people are giving with any amount of regularity in the church, right? Now, that shouldn't be the case, should it? It shouldn't be, Right? I w- but I-, I wish we could say 100% of our people give. Um, that's not the case here either. It's higher than the average. I think considerably higher than the average, but it's still not 100%. Why is that? Well, there's a number of reasons for that. Some of it is that newer Christians especially don't really understand this principle of giving that God's word talks about. They have a hard time understanding, why do I need to part with my hard-earned money? Like, why are you trying to separate me from, you know, my hard work, right, the money I've earned, you know, in my job or through my business, why do I need that? But others don't give, just frankly, because they're stingy. They're miserly. They're, they hoard rather than live open-handed, right? There's a scarcity mentality, sadly, in, in many people. So when they look at, oh, wow, prices are going up, you know, things are really expensive out there, I need to keep more of of what I have. I don't really want to give it. There are some that have been burnt out and burnt in word of faith churches. That's a sad reality, right? They've seen all my giving seems to go to the guy at the top and and his cadre of people that surround him. And they got the nice cars and the fancy houses and I don't have anything of that, right? So they leave those places. They come to another church who doesn't espouse that, but... Sadly, they kind of shrink back in their giving because of what they experience. Others don't give just out of a plain old fear, fear of not having enough, fear when they look at the economic uncertainty and economic things happening out there. They're like, oh, I better, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about what tomorrow might bring, right? So in the present, I'm just going to hold back on any kind of generosity, any kind of of giving. But what are these things ultimately? They're heart issues. They are gospel issues, right? And that's why we want to look at this, right? When you look at what Paul writes, when, when he's speaking uh, to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, right? He's talking to them. At the end of them, he says, you know what our Lord said. It is more blessed to give than it is to receive, right? Now, that's not found in one of the four Gospels, but obviously this is a revelation either Paul received from Christ himself or heard from one of the other apostles that were with the Lord. But he said, nevertheless, blessed is, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And, and that contradicts the world's maxim when it comes to this, right? For the world, it's more blessed to receive than it is to give. So we hear this about, man, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive, and it sounds so counterintuitive. It seems unnatural to our ears, right? Because our human tendency is to want to get more. We desire joy not so much from the giving, but in from the getting, right? When you tell your children, you know, during the holidays, right, what are you going to give me? They're like, give you? What? I'm supposed to be getting, Right? No, no, we want to teach them, right? It's more blessed when you give. Now, we know those words of Jesus are true. 
We know that. We know that in our heart, but in practice, wow, that just doesn't always feel right to us. But it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, my desire is not for you to feel guilty here today if you're not being as generous as you know you should be. It's not my desire at all, okay? Uh, But I would today that you would get a sense as we go through these passages. I mean, because they're lengthy passages, and really God's, the New Testament has a lot to say about generosity in general and in giving, but especially here in Paul's letter, is that you'd get a sense of how God is inviting us to experience the joyful life of generosity. The joyful life of generosity that is fueled by the grace of God and our gratitude to God. And that's really what I want you to sense here today. So we'll look at these two passages, and we're going to extract nine principles from this passage, okay? And you're like, that's a lot. It is, but it's not all of the principles in this passage, so I've spared you a few. But I want to encourage you to go back and read through that, because I know uh, the Lord is going to motivate you to joyful generosity through his word, through his grace, and through his spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, let's read the first Nine verses. Hear the words of the living God. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. These are the words of the Lord. Now, what's happening in this letter? You know, this is Paul's second letter to this particular church. The first letter was a pretty strongly worded letter. He was bringing correction. He was addressing some really crazy stuff happening uh, in this first century church, and he's calling them to repentance. But in that letter, he had mentioned to them about this particular act of grace that he's talking about here, this collection that they were supposed to be partaking in that was to provide relief for the Jerusalem church. And in this letter, we find out that there was repentance that took place in that church, right? God was moving in that church. Many of them repented. And so this letter has a a much different tone to it. And as we're coming to the close of that letter, he is reminding them of this commitment they made. Uh, to this collection for the saints in the Jerusalem church who, uh, who were in great need. They were suffering greatly. There was a famine throughout all of that land of Judea. The Jerusalem believers were suffering. So, so Paul was passionate 
about stirring the Gentile churches to, to supply for the needs of those believers in Jerusalem. And that's what's happening in this letter. He's, he's reminding them, hey, finish what you started. You made this commitment. The collection had started. And guess what? Now it's time to bring it to completion, right? It's time uh, we're going to be coming back to collect that so we can provide that relief for the church. And in this same chapter of our text, he writes that the, the, the abundance that the Corinthian believers were experiencing in the present time was to supply for the needs of the Jerusalem church, who also had an abundance, but it wasn't material abundance. It was a spiritual abundance. But the Corinthian believers had material abundance, right, financial abundance. And so as a matter of fairness, he's saying, hey, you've benefited from their abundance, right, their spiritual abundance, you owe a debt of gratitude to these believers for their, the spiritual blessings they've bestowed upon you. But now you, in the present, guess what? You have material blessings now. You go help them, right? That's what Paul's talking about here. So let's look at the first principle that we see in this passage here. And that is that joyful generosity is a fruit of God's grace. It is a fruit of God's grace. Paul calls this act of giving among the Gentile churches a grace of God. Think about that for a moment. What is grace? We consider grace this unmerited gift and favor of God that he shows us. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. God freely bestows that upon us. And he calls this act of giving, this generosity, the grace of God. What does that tell us? Tells us first and foremost that this joyful generosity that he's going to outline and give an example of here does not originate with man. It originates with God. Why? Because it's not natural for us, as I've talked about. We're not naturally generous people. We're selfish. We want it all for ourselves, right? We, we want to keep as much as we can, if not all of it, right? But here he says it's a grace. Now, what do we know from Scripture concerning money and material possessions? It can have a grip on our hearts, I mean, this is what Jesus says. Hey, pay attention to this, right? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart tends to follow after treasure. We want more of it, right? So money can have a grip on our heart. And that's why we read something like this and we see that the grace of God now is a fruit of this joyful generosity. The grace of God, rather, is, is the source, right, the root of this fruit of joyful generosity, what, what, what happened here? The grace of God came to these believers. Grace came. The Spirit of God transformed their hearts by the grace of God. And now they've been given this grace for joyful giving. The fruit of that transforming grace began to pry that grip right off uh, of their heart and over their treasures so that they can now begin to live open-handedly. This is something so beautiful that happens in the life of someone who's experienced genuine conversion, right? This, this death grip they had over their stuff, it's mine, right, has been loosened. And now you begin to live a little more generously. Joyful giving is the fruit of the work of grace in your heart. A changed person can no longer live just for themselves, This undeserved gift of God's grace stirs us to contribute to the needs of others, to live generously. Now, what Paul does here is he gives an example of this fruit of God's grace 
in the Macedonian believers. Look what he writes about the believers in these other churches. He writes that they were under a severe test of affliction. That doesn't sound like a good circumstance, does it? Affliction here, the original language here, the Greek, means to be under pressure. Right? Like the heat was turned up on them. They were having a difficult time, and they were living in extreme poverty. There wasn't a surplus. They weren't living the good life financially and materially. There was not an abundance of resources. Times were tough. Money was tight. But that did not deter these Macedonian believers from giving generously. What does Paul say says here? He says, in fact, they begged me. They begged me for the favor to have the opportunity to participate in this collection for the relief of the saints. Can you imagine that? They weren't looking at what they didn't have. They were looking at the needs of those brothers and sisters who were suffering. And they're like, well, with a little we have, we need to take part in that. We want to be part of blessing them. Of, of, of whatever generosity we can exhibit towards them. I mean, this is amazing what's happening here. They didn't want to miss the opportunity to be a blessing to these Jerusalem believers. Look what he says there. They gave with an abundance of joy. How about that? It wasn't begrudging. It wasn't reluctant. No one was twisting their arm. Paul wasn't shaming them. Paul wasn't guilting them. He says, out of the abundance of their joy, not out of the abundance of their resources, mind you, out of the abundance of joy they gave. Now, we tend to give not necessarily out of the abundance of our joy, but out of our surplus. We look at what we could do without. We look at what we might not miss, that extra little bit of money, right? And we go, okay, I'm going to give that. But that's not what we see here. Out of the abundance of their joy and the grace of the Lord, right, a wealth of generosity bubbled up. So much so that it even shocked Paul. Can you imagine that? Like, it blew him away to see what was happening to these believers in Macedonia and how they were giving, right? Joyful generosity. It spilled out from them. They couldn't contain their joy. We'll talk about that joy here in a moment. But they couldn't contain it. You ever watch those videos where they throw Mentos in like a two-liter of, of Coke? What happens, right? Like there's this chemical reaction of sorts, or I don't even know what happens there, right? I'm not gifted in that area. <laughs> but what does it do? It just like shoots up out of there, right? It cannot, the, the container cannot contain, right, whatever's taking place. It just has to bubble out and, and, and gush out of there. That's kind of the, the implication. That's the illustration that I want you to have in your mind with this. They had so much joy, they couldn't keep it in. And the way that joy got expressed was in joyful generosity here, right? Joyful generosity is the fruit of God's grace, stirring up joy in the heart that overflows into a wealth of generosity. That's how it's supposed to be. That's how God wants us to give. I know that's not always how we give. I know that's not always have been our experience when it comes to giving in some of the churches we've been a part of. But this is what Scripture teaches us here. Secondly, joyful generosity 
is sometimes sacrificial giving. We can conclude this from the example of the Macedonian believers, right? They gave, right, in a severe test of affliction and in extreme poverty. Would you not consider what they did sacrificial giving? Okay? And there are times for that. There are times that we are called to give sacrificially. Paul writes in verse 3 there that they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, right? He didn't tell them to do this. He didn't twist their arm. They gave above and beyond. They were so burdened by the Lord. They were so moved with conviction about the plight of their brothers and sisters at the Jerusalem church that they gave beyond what they had, beyond their means, over and above. It was sacrificial. It was costly. They didn't count up what they had. They didn't consider what they could do without or what would hurt them or what they would miss. No, they didn't even think about that. They gave beyond that. That happens to us. Maybe you've experienced that here. The Lord lays a burden upon your heart to bless someone, to to give above and beyond maybe your normal or regular giving. And when you consider it, you go, I'm going to have to do without something. Like I'm going to have to forego something I want maybe for a certain amount of time so I can engage in this this higher level of giving and to be the blessing that God is asking me to be or that God is requiring of me. It's sacrificial giving. Sometimes we may be moved to give that way. And that's what's happening here, right? It's going to be costly. It's going to hurt you a little bit. And we should all be open and responsive to the prompting of the Spirit in our life for that. I know in some places they always talk about sacrificial giving, but that's not always the case. Right? We live generously. We live open-handedly. We participate in the regular collection for our church and for the support of our church and the support of ministry partners and the work that God has called us to do. But there's sometimes that God provokes you, puts something in your heart, lays a burden on your heart that you know, hey, I've, this is going to stretch me. It's going to stretch my generosity. And not only should you respond to that and be obedient to that, but you should do it joyfully. And you should count it all joy to be able to do that. And that's what was happening with these Macedonian believers here. They joyfully gave. They joyfully gave here. Now, in 2 Samuel 24, there's this this remarkable account uh, of what takes place in the life of David and the people of God. The people of God were experiencing a plague that was sent by the Lord as a consequence of David's sin. Read that chapter, 2 Samuel 24. You'll get the whole context of what was taking place. And David obviously wants a resolution to this. Many were dying. So the Lord commands David to to raise up an altar, to to purchase this threshing floor that belonged to someone else, Arunahu, and to raise up an altar and, and offer up burnt offerings there unto the Lord so that this plague could be averted. And God's people could be res- uh, rescued and David could make repentance for his sin in disobeying the Lord. So he comes to Aranahu and tells him, I want to purchase your threshing floor. God has commanded me to raise up an altar here. Now, he's approaching one of his subjects. He's the king. He could have demanded him to turn it over, but he says to him, uh, uh, whatever you want, king, it, it's, it's, it's all yours. I'm just your humble servant. Take whatever you need. And it's profound what David says in this moment. 
He says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, which cost me nothing. It had to be sacrificial. It had to be costly to him. It had to be something that he, out of his abundance, out of what he had, he would offer as a sacrifice. He wasn't going to take somebody else's stuff and offer it to the Lord. He gave what was his. It was sacrificial. So I'm saying this principle here is, yes, joyful generosity may mean sometimes God may burden you to give in a way that hurts. Third, joyful generosity is an act of worship to God. And you may not have viewed giving as an act of worship, but it is. This is really clear and evident when we look at the Old Testament uh, scriptures. When you see the ceremonial law that instructs to bring the tithes and the offerings and all that it signifies when that's brought to the priests and brought to the tabernacle, it's all to be presented to the Lord. That's how it's considered. It's an act of devotion to the Lord. And and, and the Lord himself says, these offerings, they're for me. They're mine. They're holy unto the Lord. They are devoted, consecrated to the Lord. That was an act of of worship. It was an expression of gratitude and thanksgiving to God. It wasn't just an obligation, though it was. It was to be an act of worship. And when we give, that's exactly what that is. It's an expression of our gratitude and thankfulness to God. When you give to your local church, it's an act of worship unto God. You are thanking Him, right, for placing you in a spiritual family. You're thanking him for the opportunity to be part of the support of the family of believers here. When you give to the need of someone else and you're to be a blessing to someone else, you're you're expressing thankfulness to God that you have the opportunity to be a blessing to someone else. That God has blessed you with something, right, with some financial resource, some material blessing to be a blessing to someone else. It is an act of worship and gratitude unto God. Paul writes that these Macedonian believers gave not to please Paul. They didn't give even to in consideration of the people who would receive these blessings from them, right? They saw it as an act of worship. He says they gave themselves first to the Lord. First to the Lord. Their priority in giving was the Lord, not Paul, not the recipients of that blessing, right? They didn't give so that Paul would know that they gave. They didn't give, right, so that they would receive commendation from Paul for their giving. No, they did it in devotion to the Lord. Their heart was in it to please the Lord, to bring him glory as an act of worship. They gave themselves. And it's interesting. You see, it's not just about money, is it? Sometimes we think about giving is just about money. No, they gave themselves. There's more to this taking place here. I don't know if you know this, but God doesn't need your money. (laughs) He doesn't need it. No, we need it. He doesn't need it. He's not after your money. Guess what we read in Psalms 24? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything in it. You, me, every material thing in this world. All of what you call your money, all of what you call your material possessions, guess what? They're the Lord's. They're not yours. We don't have time to go into this in great depth, but we are stewards. We're not owners. 
Whatever we have is the Lord's. It's His. So He doesn't need your money. What is He after? It's after our heart. He's after us in this. So joyful generosity is a natural and inevitable expression of a heart that is fully devoted to Him. A heart that is not mastered by treasures, but a heart that is captivated by the master of all treasure. And that is the difference there. Stuff is not supposed to own us. But sadly, it does. We're supposed to be enthralled, captivated, right, by our Lord, by the one who gives us these blessings, not by the blessings themselves here. God is after our heart. And this is why giving is an act of worship. Ultimately, you're doing this in recognition. Lord, all of this is yours. All of it. It belongs to you. And I'm just a steward of it. So how can I be a blessing to my church, to other believers, to other opportunities that you place before me? It's an act of worship unto the Lord. Fourth, joyful generosity is proof of the genuineness of one's love for others. Okay? This is interesting. I'm going to get into the passage here where Paul shows us this. You know, one of the, I would call, the terrible aspects of the social media error era that we are in here uh, is that it gave rise to what's called slacktivism. Social activism, but it's really slacktivism, right? What is that? That is when others, when you tend to like or share a post uh, about a natu- uh, uh, some type of uh, cause or movement that maybe we're interested in or that has piqued our interest or we're passionate about, and, and we tend to just express you know, our support for this cause by either liking one of their posts or sharing that post or maybe filling out an online petition. But here's the thing. Our activism, our support for this cause doesn't actually go beyond that. It doesn't really do anything, but it made us feel good. Because at the heart of it is, right, what is the least commitment I can get behind this thing in? And we've all, we've all been guilty of that. Oh, big deal. You put that little red X on your hand because we're going to end human trafficking and, and sexual trafficking once a year. We just take a little selfie of ourselves. Look at me. I'm a warrior for the cause. You've done nothing. You haven't set a single person free from sex trafficking or human trafficking, right? But you felt good. That's kind of the heart behind this, this kind of stuff. But here's the thing. That's not really neighbor love. That's not really loving your neighbor. That's not really serving anybody. It doesn't really do anything, right? You didn't even lift a finger to do anything about it, right? But you felt good. Love is demonstrable. Love is expressed by action, not words. We can say, I love you to someone all I want. But how will they know we actually love them? Our actions. By what we do. Deeds performed in love is the demonstration that love actually is present and is there. Our willingness to give in practical ways is a key indicator of the genuineness of the love we claim to have for one another. Paul writes here in verse 8. He says, I say this not as a command. And that's important. He's not saying, thus say the Lord here. But he's saying, I'm not writing this as a command, but I want you to consider this. 
right? I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. Hey, these other believers in Macedonia, they not only have said that they love the believers in Jerusalem, they backed it up by action. They gave out of the abundance of joy in their extreme poverty, right? It overflowed into this extreme generosity, right? So what he's saying here, that they would prove that they love the believers in Jerusalem, not because they said they loved them, but by completing what they had committed to doing in financial support. That's how that genuineness of love was proven. John says it like this in 1 John chapter 3, 17 through 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother's, uh, brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's pretty convicting, isn't it? We can't claim to love others if we're not willing to give or serve them when they're in need. Any claim of love that we are making is invalidated by our inaction when it counts. And that's what Paul is getting at here. And do you see why all of this points back to the heart? And why it's a gospel issue, why it's a discipleship issue? It's about our heart. There is an invisible thread that connects your heart and your bank account, your purse, or your wallet. It's there. It's there. And it's a lot for us to consider. An evaluation of your giving habits will speak more about the true condition of your heart than any lip service you give about loving others. Because it's not in word, it's in deed where that is really demonstrated. And the way we handle our money is a very reliable indicator of our spiritual condition. Why is it that the Lord spoke so much about this? It's not because he needs your money. Because he's after your heart. And you don't see many times your lack of generosity for what it is. It's idolatry. Something's got a hold of your heart that shouldn't have a hold of your heart. You're devoting yourself to something that you should not be giving your allegiance and devotion to. This joyful generosity or our giving or lack thereof, right? It gives evidence to support or refute our claims of loving God, loving others, and what our trust is truly in. We have to really weigh that out. Fifth. Joyful generosity follows after the example of our Savior. What does Paul do in grounding not only in these exhortations, not in just giving the example of these Macedonian believers? He's not trying to guilt or manipulate the, the, the believers at Corinth to do all these things he's, he's telling them here. No, what does he do? He grounds it as he always does in the gospel of God's grace in Christ Jesus. It always comes back to this, doesn't it? Sometimes he starts with the indicatives, all of the gospel truths, all of the gospel realities, everything we have in Christ, and then he moves to the exhortations and commands. Other times he flips it. Here's what you got to do, but here's why you're supposed to do it. Here's the motivation behind it. You're not earning your salvation through these things. No, but because you're already saved. Because of what you already have in Christ Jesus, now here's how we live, right? Paul grounds it in this. It's because of what Christ has done 
for us. Because of his example of selfless, extravagant generosity that our giving is to be a reflection of such grace. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. What is he saying here? Jesus left the riches and glories of heaven to take upon himself our pitiful, lowly human existence, right? To what end? For our salvation, for our rescue. That's why he did it. Paul writes about this again in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, became poor, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Lord of glory took the form of a servant, humbling himself for our rescue. He exchanged the rich, his riches like for our poverty. Have you considered that? By taking on himself humanity in his incarnation, leaving the splendor, the glory of heaven for this? You'd go, that's not a good trade-off, was it? You wouldn't trade that. I wouldn't trade that. We were in spiritual poverty. We were spiritually bankrupt. Our sins deserved the full, unrestrained, holy, just wrath of God as punishment for our sin and wickedness. But what did he do? He exchanged his riches for that spiritual poverty, for our spiritual bankruptcy. Took upon himself our punishment. To what end? So that we could have his riches. So that you and I would become rich. We've been enriched with every spiritual blessing Christ purchased for us through the redemption by his blood. Isn't that what Ephesians chapter 1 tells us? We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every one of them. Nothing has been withheld. None of those riches have been held back from you and I in Christ Jesus. And it's all by the grace of our Lord. That's why he says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It starts with grace. Our giving begins with grace and it culminates with grace. It's all by the grace of God. It's all by the supreme example, the ultimate example we have of what our Lord has done for us, His extreme and joyful generosity. That is our motivation for joyful giving, brothers and sisters. It's not to get anything. It's not to feel good in our hearts. We have some warmth in the cockles of our heart when we bless someone else. It isn't about you. We've seen what our Lord has done for us and our only response is going to be to live the same way and to follow that example. And so knowing this, that means that the Christian with, with the least amount of material possessions that you can think of on this planet 
is rich beyond anything Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk have by way of material possessions. All of us here in Christ are far richer than all of the riches of this world, all of the material blessings that one could possess on this filthy, broken, and depraved planet. Giving begins and ends with the gospel of grace. So why be joyfully generous? Because of the example of our Lord, because of what he's done for us. Our generous giving is an expression of our gratitude for his ultimate example of generosity. And that's why Paul says in verse 7, hey, just like you're excelling in these other spiritual virtues and graces, right, in faith, right, in, 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 in kindness, in love, in, in all of these other things that we're supposed to be growing in and excelling in, see, he says, that you excel in this grace also. Excel in the grace of giving, of generosity. And you and I need to grow and excel in this grace. Let's look at the second passage in our teaching today, the ninth chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to read uh, verse 6 through verse 15. Paul writes, The point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. How many times have you heard that in offering messages, right? God loves a cheerful giver. Verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Wow, that's a lot. But let me finish up with just a few more principles here. Joyful generosity is about bountiful sowing and reaping. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I'm not a farmer. I don't presume to know anything about farming. And I'm going to guess that you are not a farmer either. Though you might know more about farming than I do. But all of us here can still understand this general universal rule of agriculture that Paul is using here to to serve as an illustration and to make the point that he is making here. If you want to yield a bountiful harvest, what do you have to do? you got to plant a lot of seed. 
More seed, bigger harvest. That's not complicated at all. It's a general principle, right? It's, it's like one of the Proverbs. It's not a promise. It's a general rule of thumb. It's a general principle that happens in this world. You sow a lot of seeds, and through the natural processes, and then through labor and hard work and tilling the ground, watering the ground, doing all the things you have to do, guess what? That'll yield a bountiful harvest. But if you don't plant a lot of seeds, what are you going to have? A teeny tiny harvest, right? That's what he's talking about. The principle here is that the harvest you reap is directly related to the amount of seed you sow. Now, this principle of sowing and reaping has been right abused and misused and misapplied by the prosperity gospel. You guys know how we feel about that here, how we talk about it here, how we teach against it here. A lot of damage has been done in this area. Oh, you got to you got to sow that 1000 Dollar C to get that, you know, thousand-fold return. You know, write that check right now. Don't just do it once. Do it twice. Maybe three times, right? And God is going to return to you that a hundred-fold and more, right? So you sow the money, and you're going to get that car. You're going to get that house. And it's all supposed to be evidence of the favor of God by, by material possessions and all of these things. I don't have time to uh, address all of those things around here again today, but we know that that's not the way this works. First of all, material possessions are not an indication of God's favor in your life. That's not what we look to. Our assurance of whether we have favor with God is not in how much is in my bank account, how big my house is, how many material things, all the stuff that I have. Our assurance is what Christ Jesus has done for us. His riches for our poverty, right? That's what we know. That's what we believe, right? Um, so we don't believe that. That's idolatrous, heretical garbage, right? If you believe some of that, let's talk. <laughs> All right. But I don't want us to allow a distortion of the gospel, an aberration of what these gospel realities and truths are to, to keep us from the blessings we actually do receive from our giving. I don't want us to go to the other end of this and, and act like our giving doesn't do anything. Like there's no blessing or reward from it because that's not what we see here. There is. You sow, you will reap. That is a universal, immutable principle God has established. As the earth remains, it says, right, in Genesis, there's going to be seed time and harvest time. In the natural as well as the spiritual, okay? So what's going on here? What's he talking about here? What kind of harvest is Paul saying that we are going to reap from our financial sowing? Is it a spiritual harvest in mind or is it a material harvest in mind? What do you think? You don't know how to answer, do you? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. You guys know by now, right? This is not an either-or scenario going on here. I think in the context of this passage, we're to expect both spiritual and material blessings when we sow bountifully. That's what he's talking about here. Now, is it a direct one-to-one correlation? I sow a dollar, I get a dollar back. I sow a car, I get a car. I sow a house, I'm open to that. I, I get, you know, a bigger one in return or something like that. Now, the most natural expectation of sowing material blessings is that we'll re- reap material blessings in return of some sort. 
We know that a seed reproduces after its kind. When you sow a tomato seed, what are you going to get? Tomato plant, okay? But I don't think Paul is trying to press this metaphor too hard here, okay? The point is this. If you're miserly and stinging in your giving, don't expect abundance of blessings in return. That's, that's really the point here. There is a bountiful harvest we can expect when we sow liberally. And he wants us to know that joyful, bountiful sowing has its rewards. So he's saying, don't be cheap. Don't hold back. Because there is a blessing in it. There is a harvest. And let me show you <clears throat> that I believe he's telling us here it's both spiritual and material. Okay? As a general principle. First of all, he says that you'll receive a harvest. He'll increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now, this is not, the right, this is not about salvation by our own righteousness. No. Your righteousness means your good. The good that you do. He'll increase your capacity, ability to continue to do righteous, good works. Okay? Now, I think that's both spiritual and material. All right? He also says you're going to be enriched in every way. Well, it says in every way. Is that only spiritual? No, it's spiritual and material enrichment. And he says that God will make his grace abound to us so that we will have, look, all sufficiency in all things at all times. I like that. Every, all, spiritual and material blessings. But here's the deal. You don't control what that harvest is. God is in charge of the harvest. The harvesting result is up to God. How he chooses to bless us. Okay? So we don't have this understanding. It's just because I'm giving. It's all coming back. You know, in, in cars and houses and boats and whatever your heart delights in. Okay? But if we want a greater harvest, then we need to sow bountifully. Amen? That's the point. Seven. Joyful generosity is intentional. Each one, verse 7, must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Notice what Paul is saying here. He's not telling us here that every believer needs to give a set amount. Every one of you better put $100 in the till. When that offering basket goes by, make sure you put X amount. He's not even saying, get this. Make sure you give 10% of your income. What is he saying? Each one must give as he has what? Purpose. Decided in his heart. Nowhere in this passage is he making a specific amount a command. Not even the tithe. He's not pressuring them to give. He's saying your giving is what you purpose to give voluntarily. Not under compulsion or coercion or even as a command. No, that's not how this works. The decision of giving is up to you. It's up to you. And that means what is generous for you? What does joyful generosity look like for you? Because it's not the same for each person. 
That's why sometimes you hear it talked as our giving is to be proportionate. Why? Well, we don't all have the same amount of things. We don't all have the same amount of resources. Some of you are more materially or financially blessed than others. Some of you have more to give. So what is generous for you may not be generous for me. This is why we have the account right in the Gospels of the widow's might. And, and right, Jesus makes it very clear. Guess what? She gave more than those others. They gave out of their surplus, like we talked about earlier. What didn't count, what, that they, what they wouldn't miss, what wouldn't hurt, they gave God a little tip. She gave out of what she didn't have. Her giving was sacrificial. That's the point Jesus was showing, right? It's not the same. Arguably, we could say, well, no, they gave more. They gave $100. She gave a couple pennies. Well, yeah, from our earthly perspective, we might see it that way, but that's not the way the Lord views those things. Why? Because he knows what really joyful generosity is supposed to look like for us, okay? So what is generous for you? That's the answer when the, in, instead of asking how much should I give, because that's what a, a lot of people want to know, okay? For the record, so you know, the tithe, the Old Testament tithing, the ceremonial law has been fulfilled and completed in Christ. That's why you don't see the tithe talked about in the New Testament. And you'll see that passage talked about here, okay? Uh, it's grace giving that's in view here. We give as a response to the grace of God. The tithe is probably the floor, the minimum. And guess what? There's no maximum established. It's joyful, generous, liberal, bountiful giving. That's in view of a heart following the example of our Lord and as a response to the grace of God. And we do so out of the joy we have in Christ Jesus. So he says your giving is not under compulsion but with a cheerful heart. That means when you give, you should have a big smile on your heart. Right? Your heart should be beaming, however that is. I don't know that imagery there. but And so challenge yourself to give with greater generosity while remembering that you need to be able to give with joy. Okay, should be joyful. So what does that look like for you? And that's what I want you to consider. Okay, Now, the beauty of our digital era is here that over 90% of our church family gives online. And some of those... Put in, have, have recurring gifts, right? Their giving is automatic. And I'm thankful for that because we can, we can count on a certain amount coming with, with, regular, with regularity. But I don't want you to just put your giving on autopilot and don't even think about it or consider it anymore because what you gave three years ago, that might not be generosity for you anymore. It may not be, okay? So consider that because it's supposed to be intentional, needs to be purposed in your heart. You decide what that is supposed to be and what joyful generosity looks like for you. If you're not giving, right, for whatever reason, I'm encouraging you to repent of your self-reliance. Maybe your lack of trust in the Lord or your fear and begin to engage in generous living. And that brings me to my next principle here. Joyful generosity trusts in God's provision. Joyful generosity is a reflection of our trust in God's provision for us. And that is all over this passage right here. That that God will take care of us when we live open-handed. When we live generously. Okay? Again, in 8, 
He's going to make all grace abound to you so that you'll have all sufficiency in all things at all times to abound in every good work. Generous givers will receive a generous supply of ample provisions from God. So what? So they can do more of the good works that they're already doing. Which reminds us that when blessings come to us, they're supposed to go through us. We're blessed to be a blessing. We are enriched so that we can continue to enrich others. That's the way that's worked. What happens to us sometimes? Financial blessings come our way and we're like, woo! We increase our standard of living, right? We spend more on the stuff we couldn't buy before, but now we can, you know? Buy another guitar. You can buy another of whatever it is that you love and like and want. But that's, that's not why we're blessed, is it? It's to be a blessing. It's to be enriched so that we can enrich others. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. What's he saying here? God's going to supply that initial financial blessing to you so that you can sow it and that you can be a blessing. And when you sow that seed in the form of generous giving, you're going to receive a harvest. And God is going to then multiply that seed so that what? You'll have more to sow the next time. It's a beautiful cycle of joyful generosity. The more we sow, the more we reap so that we can sow more and reap more. Spiritual and material blessings. Our capacity for generosity will increase, as will the joy we experience in generous giving. And there is joy in giving generously. There truly is. I know every time I give joyfully and cheerfully, right, not not under compulsion, as an act of worship, what am I expressing by that? I'm expressing to God that I trust you to provide for me. My trust isn't in my paycheck. The source of everything I need, the supply I need for living and to be a blessing to others, that doesn't come from the company I work for or my 401k or any other way that you derive revenue to take care of yourself and your family. It's from the Lord. I'm trusting in his provision. I'm not fretting about and how to ooh, make it all happen. I'm trusting God will provide for me if I'm obedient to him. And when he does, it's not for me to hoard it and keep it and enrich myself, but to be a blessing to others, to be generous. And that's the purpose of those blessings he provides. Too many don't give generously because they aren't trusting that God will take care of them. This is all I have, so I've got to make this got to make this work out nope that's not that's not what he's saying here man many let anxiety about the future keep them from being generous in the present this isn't about preparedness right preparing for the future is prudent we're supposed to do that saving putting towards a retirement right investments that you know are going to produce that is prudent guess what's not prudent fear anxiety and worry and stress about the future That's sinful, okay? That's sinful, and it's an expression of a lack of trust that God actually provides. I mean, Eric talked about that last week. And Jesus said, do not be anxious about anything. Don't worry. Why? Your heavenly Father, he knows what you have need of. And if he cares about 
what we consider to be insignificant in this world, and he clothes the flowers of the field, and he feeds the birds of the air. Doesn't he love you more than those things and will not generously provide for you all things? Of course. But what do we do? Because we're relying on ourselves, because we're fearful of the future, because we think I, I've got to, kind of like the squirrels that just got to get all those nuts or whatever it is that they eat, and, and they store it up, and it's like, oh, because winter's coming. But some of us live like winter's always coming. And when we do have a surplus, even then we don't give. So how many people have said, when I have this, when I have more, then I'm going to start giving? That's not the way that works. When you don't give in the lean times, you're not going to give in the times of fat and plenty. Right? It's about the heart, guys. It's about the heart. So preparing for the future is prudent, but being fearful about the future reveals our trust is more in ourselves than it is in God. Now, be mindful here of what Paul is writing here. If the choice is, the decision is between you um, paying your rent or having something to eat and giving, guess what? Eat. Pay your rent. Fulfill your obligations, okay? There's grace here. That's why this is not an obligatory tithe, brothers and sisters, okay? But that's not usually the case for us, especially here, right? Give generously. Give with open heart and open hands, and God will take care of you here, okay? So he he writes here in verse 13, our giving is submission to God that comes from our confession of the gospel of Christ. Listen to that. I saw that sounds like a lot of words. What is he saying here? What he's saying is, is that through their generosity, through their generous giving and bountiful sowing, we prove the genuineness of our confession and the genuineness that, uh, that we have truly embraced the gospel. Okay? If you're confessing the gospel, well, then that means you're living as a joyfully generous individual and living a generous life. So a question for you. Does your giving validate or invalidate your confession of the gospel? Are you trusting Christ or are you trusting yourself? Lastly, number nine. This may be a record for me here. I'm going to have to keep going. All right. Joyful generosity produces thanksgiving to God. Verse 11 through 15, I'm not going to read that again. But four times in, that, in those few verses, Paul expresses that our giving produces or results in thanksgiving to God, that it glorifies God. Isn't that beautiful? Right? When you give generously, you give thanks to God as an act of worship, as we've talked about. And when someone is blessed through another's financial or material generosity, what do they do? They give thanks to God. Joyful generosity begets thanksgiving to God, and it brings God glory. Because God acted open-handedly with me, because he lavished his grace upon me, I want to live generously so that gratitude towards God would increase, so that it would result in more and more thanksgiving to God. And through the giving of our church, we blessed Freeway Ministries not too long ago when they had a a need. Guess what it produced? Thanksgiving to God. 
they glorified God. When we're able to meet someone's need through benevolence in our church, guess what it produces? Thanksgiving to God. When you bless someone else with your finances, it produces thanksgiving to God. When you give faithfully to your local church, guess what it produces? Thanksgiving to God. That's what the gratitude should look like. It's not gratitude just to the person. It's to God. It's thanksgiving to our Lord. We should never be concerned with whether we get the credit for our generous acts. We should only be concerned about God's glory and giving him thanks. Our world wants to make a big to-do when they give, don't they? Think about large corporations, right? They give a, a large financial contribution to some charity or something like that. What's the first thing they do? They launch this massive PR campaign. Look at us. Look how amazing and generous we are. And they, you know, they parade out their CEO with this large check, you know, with who it's made out to and the large, man. And, and, and it's just kind of like this faux humility here of, of charity here. It's for them. We just, well, we did that. You know? No, that's not how we, that's not what this is about. We want our giving not to be about us. It's about bringing glory and thanksgiving to God. That's why Jesus said, how is our giving to be done? It's not by making a big show of it. That's what the Pharisees did. They paraded around with a lot of chains. So when they would put it in the offertory boxes, right, it was like, whoo, make this loud sound. And everyone would turn and go, whoa. They dropped a big load there. Well, it was a load, but not of what you're thinking. And Jesus says, no, that doesn't please me. That's not worship for me. That's, that's for the praises of men. We don't give for that purpose. We don't, we don't give to others to make our name known. Now, we have a tendency of wanting other people to know about our good deeds. Not overtly, but it's like a humble brag. Or we slip it in a conversation somehow. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember when I was able to. No, no. Our giving is supposed to be unto the Lord. To produce thanksgiving and worship to God. So what's your motivation for giving? Again, it comes back to the heart. It's all a heart issue. And the only proper motivation for our giving is the grace of our Lord and for it to produce thanksgiving to God. All right, that's the nine principles. It's not all of them here, but they're important ones, brothers and sisters. They're a matter of our growth in godliness. Now, Paul closes this passage with a doxological profession. Thanks be to God. For his inexpressible gift. What is that gift? That gift is God's son. God's own son. And all of these principles, brothers and sisters, were perfectly displayed in the life and death of our Lord Jesus Christ, the son of God. He is the grace of God made manifest. He sacrificially gave himself for us. His death was an offering for our guilt, our sin, our trespass. And that offering was acceptable and a pleasing act of worship to his heavenly father. He proved the genuineness of his love for those whom he redeemed by laying down his life. He sowed the maximal seed that could be sown. His exceedingly precious and priceless blood to reap the bountiful harvest of salvation through all those he came to save. 
and he purposed from all eternity to rescue and ransom a people by his blood, and he joyfully completed what he set out and determined to do. He lived his earthly existence in the likeness of human flesh in full trust of God's provision, and his ultimate act of joyful generosity has resulted in an unceasing thanksgiving to God from the hearts of all of the redeemed. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift.